This Cosmos Live series, How to Prepare for Profound Change, is made possible by Immediacy, leading creators of educational media for learners of all ages everywhere, and by Cosmos Community, dedicated supporters of the Cosmos mission, transformation in harmony with all life. Visit cosmosjournal.org to learn more. From our recording studios in Philadelphia, this is Cosmos Live, and I'm your host, Rhonda Fabian. And I think that's the thing that we sometimes um, overcomes us, is that we think, oh, I'm only one person. What can I do about this problem? Um, so I think the most important thing about activism is to realize your own power, that every single person counts, and that's how change comes, um, that we, we each take action in, in the way that we can, and that we build on that. That's Judy Wicks. Judy is the co-founder of the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, BALE, and an international leader and speaker in the local living economy movement. She is former owner of the White Dog Cafe, acclaimed for its socially and environmentally responsible business practices. She is also my friend of 30 years. Welcome to Cosmos Live, Judy. Thank you, Rhonda. It's great to be here. Judy, um, the idea of a local living economy is something that inspired you, I think, long before you even had a name for it. How did your understanding of those three words evolve, and when did they first spur you into action? The word living, for me, means an economy that supports life, both natural life and community life, uh, the natural and the man-made ecosystems um, that are, you know, that our businesses are. Are part of. So I guess, you know, um, that began for me, uh, the living part, um, as a child, um, both living in a community of a small town that was very um, supportive and um, also living close to nature. My parents were great nature lovers. We went on canoe trips for our family vacations. So I was always very attuned to the living world. Uh, and then later in life, when we were uh, forming what became Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, I heard the word living uh, used in that application from David Corton. Um, and so it seemed like a good way to describe that part of what we mean um, in, in building these new economies. And then the local part uh, obviously means um, local, but to go further, um, producing goods, especially basic needs, as close to home as possible and having business ownership uh, be local, that the owner of a business lives within 50 miles of his or her business. And that was the way that things were done when I was growing up in the 50s. You know, the local drugstore, the locally owned gas station, the local butcher, the grocery store, these were all owned by people that I, I knew personally. And I went to school with their kids. And our town was surrounded by farms and much of our food came from local farmers um, markets or uh, from my own uh, parents' fan, uh, vegetable garden. They're both gardeners, and I was always sent up to pick the pick the vegetables. And we would drive into the city to buy clothes uh, for school at one of two big family-owned department stores in in Pittsburgh. Uh, I lived in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, and I re I remember when the first mall was built uh, outside of my small town along the highway going into Pittsburgh, and the first McDonald's uh, was close uh, nearby that mall. And as a teenager, you know, I, I, I thought um, 
this was really cool. You know, the, to go to the mall and hang out, to go to McDonald's, and um, that was uh, that was really a cool thing. But as I, I got older, I began to see um, uh, what what this was doing, how it was changing our culture. Judy, I'm sure many people listening to this remember similar moments in their own communities when things seemed to shift. But you actually did something about it. Describe some of the ways that you aligned your work with your values when you founded the White Dog Cafe. Uh, at the White Dog, uh, my, my mission was to be fully of service, uh, service to my customers, service to my employees, service to my community, and service to the natural environment. So um, when I made a decision, the first thing wasn't uh, for me, uh, how much money are you going to make by that decision? but rather how will that decision best serve um, one or more of these areas, customers, employees, community, or the natural world. So when things came up like uh, the opportunity to buy renewable energy uh, from um, a, a local wind company, uh, it was going to cost a lot more money, but uh, it would serve my mission. Um, so I was the first business in Pennsylvania to by 100% of our electricity from renewable sources. Um, and that, that story just continued um, throughout my, my business life. Um, I guess you know, probably the most important uh, practice was buying from local farmers. And even though at the time it was uh, more expensive to buy from local farmers and, and a lot more labor to buy from local farmers. And um, you know, but because of my background, when I started the White Dog, uh, which was in 1983, the localism, uh, the local food movement, wasn't um, on the radar screen. I wanted to have food like my mother cooked. Um, I had been 10 years in a French restaurant, and I was tired of, of that, of import, imported ingredients and heavy cream sauces and so on. So, you know, I, I just, uh, to me, it was just the natural thing to try and find local food and to um, cook it in a style that enhanced the, the natural flavors um, and using, you know, natural herbs and so on. So, you know, I started buying from local farmers and um, we became one of the first in, in, in our region to, to buy local. Uh, but I think the, uh, probably the, the decision I was most proud of is that after many years of cultivating farmers, um, we had 25 or so farmers that we bought from and including uh, farms that sold uh, pastured animal products. And that was one of the things I cared most about. The factory farming of pigs um, was so horrifying to me when I, when, I, when I heard the story, you know, of how the mother sows are kept in cages and not able to walk uh, even one step forward, you know, their ent entire lives. I was so appalled that I took pork off the menu um, and found a source for pastured pork. Um, so... That then ended up, um, once I got the that established, that kind of trade route, so to speak, established, so we had several sources of local pork, then um, I heard about the plight of the cow and how cows are herbivores, they're supposed to eat grass and so on. So then I found a source for grass-fed beef and, of course, a pastured chicken and uncaged eggs and so on. So I was very proud of our menu that we were cruelty-free, that all of our animal products came from small family farms. And, and at first I thought, well, this is, this is going to be our market niche. This is our competitive advantage. You know, this is all about us. Uh, but then I had a transformative moment <laughs> when I 
realized that uh, that if I really cared, you know, about the the farm animals, if I really cared about the environment that was being polluted by the concentration of manure in these factory farms, if I cared about the workers in these horrible slaughterhouses and 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 factories, if I cared about the consumers that were eating meat that was full of antibiotics and hormones, then rather than keeping this list of farmers uh, as my proprietary um, information, that I would share this with my competitors. This was a way for me to, um, to serve a whole uh, region, to serve in a wider way, to expand the network of farmers that, that supplied the white dog to a network of farmers that supplied our city. Um, and um, it, 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 it occurred to me that there, there is no such thing as one sustainable business, that we can only be part of a sustainable system, um, and that we need to see that, um, see the larger picture, um, and that we can only build this sustainable system by cooperating, uh, including cooperating with our competitors. So that was a, that was a major turning point in my life. Um, uh, when I made that decision, and from that point on, it just felt so good to 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 share, you know, <laughs> and to cooperate. Uh, and, you know, I just kept doing it. You're listening to Cosmos Live, a production of Cosmos Journal, dedicated to transformation of self, communities, institutions, and planet in harmony with all life. You can subscribe at www.cosmosjournal.com. I'm speaking with author and activist Judy Wicks. Her book, Good Morning, Beautiful Business, is both memoir and primer for running a socially conscious business in service to people and planet. I wonder, um, as a woman, a fiercely independent, uncompromising woman, I, I might add, what obstacles that were typical barriers for women were not obstacles for you, and um, what unexpected challenges did you encounter as an entrepreneur and a localist? I, I think I was fortunate in that I didn't. I don't feel that uh, being a woman held me back in any way. I mean, I had the usual sexist experiences where a salesman would say, "Well, uh, I'd like to speak with your husband," <laughs> and I said, "Well, my husband's not here. This is my business," you know, and uh, you know, so that happened all the time. But. Um, you know, really, I guess my business taught me um, that about feminine, my feminine power. Uh, as a child, I was a tomboy, and so I, um, I, I tried to deny the fact that I was a girl. I mean, like girls were sissies, you know. And I always played with the boys and played baseball and build forts and and so on. And I, you know, I didn't want to be seen as one of those sissy girls that wears pink and plays with dolls, you know. <laughs> but as a an adult with my own business, I began to see that. The traditional feminine values, um, such as you know, a focus on relationship building, um, having compassion, cooperating, uh, nurturing, sharing—all these things um, were traditional feminine values. And you know, as a young manager, when I was working for someone else, a, a man, he used to tell me to be businesslike, you know, and make those tough decisions, and and. Um, and uh, don't get emotional about things. You know, in other words, you know, make your decisions from your head, not from your heart. Um, and this, of course, is is uh, traditional business uh, advice. This is um, this is how business works. It's not um, in, in our in our culture. So this all made me realize um, how out of balance our 
our economy actually is in terms of, of feminine and masculine energies. And I, and when I speak of those energies, I, I, they're, I see them as available in both men and women. In fact, we, we each, no matter what sex we are, need to balance our, our feminine and our masculine energies. And um, I had a farmer one time that, that gave me this great story about this. Um, and he said um, that good farming was the appropriate balance of masculine and feminine uh, energies. That the, which he, uh, he described as the masculine being efficiency and the, and the feminine being nurturing. So he, he, he explained that um, if you have too much um, masculine energy and not enough feminine, that you might have a well-run farm um, you're using your time wisely, but you're not going to have a good product. You're not going to have good tomatoes or chickens or whatever. On the other hand, you know, if you have too much feminine energy, too much nurturing, uh, you might have great uh, tomatoes and chickens, but you're going to go out of business because you're not a, working in an efficient way. You're not using your time in a wise way, which is a huge thing in farming, uh, of use of time. Um, so this got me thinking about how the whole economy is out of balance, that there's too much uh, masculine energy, too much uh, focus on efficiency and cost controls and so on. And nothing could exemplify this better than the factory farming of animals. And when you think about those, say, the, the, the hens, the battery cages of hens, the name of the game is how, how little can you give the hen? How little space, how little light and air, how little food and water uh, to produce the cheapest egg on earth, you know? And there's no feminine energy whatsoever, you know, in this system that's really... Um, there's no nurturing <laughs> at all. And um, so, so this, this was a lesson to me um, in how lucky I was uh, because I, I feel that the, because of the way we were, we're raised in our culture that um, feminine values are, are, are um, brought out in, in, in women to a large extent but repressed in men. And for women who want to succeed in business, um, uh, we also repress our feminine. But by having my own business, I began to see how it was my feminine qualities that really made my business unique, that it was my capacity uh, to share and to cooperate, to have compassion, uh, to build a business that was based on relationships rather than money, uh, that made it successful and made it unique. You could have stopped right there. The white dog was so successful. What was the impetus for starting the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, Bale? Well, Bali is now um, 16 or 17 years old, so we started in, two, in 2001. And in 1999, uh, two events happened that really kind of woke me up um, to the loss of local economies. And that was um, the sale of Ben & Jerry's to Unilever. It was a forced uh, buyout. And I, I actually sat up in bed in the middle of the night and, and thought, oh my gosh, they bought Ben & Jerry's. Uh, because that was really our model for socially responsible business. And the fact that they were bought out by a multinational was just startling to me, and it was a real a wake up call. Um, and then, uh, within in the exact same period of time, was the Battle of Seattle um, in in um, Seattle, Washington, where um, uh, many people stood up to the World Trade Organization with protests at their at their meeting there. And I didn't know anything about this. I was a small business person with my head in the sand, running my business. But my daughter was in college at the time, and she went to Seattle. And it was from her that I really uh, began to understand the big picture, how um, these students and professors and environmentalists and union leaders and so on were all there, uh, not, not protesting globalization, but the, the idea that the, the global economy was controlled by these large multinationals and that the rules of the WTO would override 
uh, local laws that were meant to protect the environment and protect uh, workers. So uh, this was a one-two punch, the sale of Ben and & Jerry's in Seattle, that woke me up to the fact that we were losing our, our local economies. Uh, and then there were, you know, obviously there were other things in my life that um, taught me this as well. Uh, just seeing in my own small town how the, the local hardware store where the, the men used to sit on the front porch and talk on Saturday mornings and have coffee. And, uh, and then, you know, that went out of business when the Home Depot uh, came to town and, and the malls and so on. So I think all of us really have experienced that loss of community that um, chain stores and, and globalization has, has caused, uh, let alone the damage to the environment um, of um, our, our economy, our extractive economy. So it was at the time that Ben & Jerry's was sold, I was, uh, I was um, a, um, in a leadership position at a, a national business organization called the Social Venture Network. And I saw that um, the issues that I cared about, such as um, local ownership and a, and a sense of, of place and community um, and, and scale, um, having an economy that's at a human scale, were not, the, were not valued um, at Social Venture Network, even though they were very progressive. Uh, the, the idea there was to grow your progressive, um, socially responsible company as large as the big bad companies and, and uh, beat them at their own game. Um, and then I realized the fallacy of that because uh, what would happen is as our companies got bigger and bigger, they would be bought out um, just as Ben & Jerry's was by Unilever. And then uh, this continued to, to happen with the body shop. Another icon of our movement was also bought out um, by L'Oreal and, you know, Tom's of Maine by Pamela Colgate and on and on and on. Um, so that's what inspired me um, to um, co-found Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, along with uh, uh, a friend, a uh, fellow board member at SVN, uh, Laurie Hamill. And so it's been 16 years now since we started uh, Bali, and, uh, but that's how it began. You're listening to Cosmos Live, made possible by Cosmos Community, dedicated members who support Cosmos in numerous ways. I'm speaking with local economy pioneer Judy Wicks. She is also an author, public speaker, and veteran activist. Judy, one of the things I admire most about you is your willingness to show up um, on the front lines for a cause you believe in, and you bring your whole heart with you, or sometimes you even bring the front lines to where you are, and it's gotten you into some hot water at times. Um, what are some of the key lessons from your life as an activist? Well, you know, um, I guess the biggest thing is that... Uh, not to feel powerless. Um, you know, when I when I sold the white dog, um, I was moping around when it came when an issue came up. Now, at the white dog, when an issue came up, I would hop right on it and I would um, have a program. Um, you know, whether it was uh, the war on drugs or um, public education or um, foreign policy or climate change. You know, I would have speakers. I would do tours. Um, you know, we did a, a child watch tour. Uh, of the lives of inner city kids, uh, you know, it, it was um, a way that I had of, of addressing, of being an activist through my business, uh, being an uh, entrepreneurial activist, uh, and really running an activist business. Um, 
our slogan was food, fun, and, and social activism. So it was an integral part of my business. And when I sold it, I was um, I was bemoaning to a friend that you know now I was only one person. You know what could I do? And my my friend said to me, "I said, Judy, you've always only been one person." <laughs> hey, that's right. You know. Um, and so, and I think that's the thing that we sometimes. Um, overcomes us is that we think, oh, I'm only one person. What can I do about this problem? Um, so I think the most important thing about activism is to realize your own power, that every single person counts, and that's how change comes, um, that we, we each take action in, in the way that we can and that we build on that. Um, so, and to think big, to dream big, and to begin with just connecting with the people around you, with your friends, and saying, how, how about you know, going on this march, or let's do this, or whatever, and then building that out. Um, so just to give you like a recent example, um, uh, since I've been retired, really, um, you know, I heard about the fracking um, in, in north of uh, of my home in Philadelphia, um, and I went on a tour because uh, I think maybe the first step, you know, in activism is to become knowledgeable, mm-hmm. become knowledgeable, you know, uh, you know, of your uh, where you live, you know, and what are the issues there, you know, whether it's around food or energy or. Um, you know, whatever the issues are to, to, to know about it. And so I realized that as a, a person living in the city who was buying natural gas and benefiting from the low cost of natural gas, that I was complicit, you know, in this system. So just like I stopped, um, you know, uh, buying factory meat um, and how I you know, stopped buying um, electricity produced by fo- fossil fuels, I decided that I was not going to buy natural gas. So... Anyway, I after I converted my own house, then I then I joined a campaign to solarize my own community, um, and then you know then I then I got involved, um, uh, and this gets back to the activism um, in uh, a pipeline fight out in Lancaster County. They had Greenpeace volunteers come to the a farm there where they where they have an encampment. They made a camp right in the line of where the pipeline is going through. Um, and uh, they're training people in civil disobedience. So I'm signed up. I'm on the emergency list. So when the pipeline um, comes, if all the legal means have been tried and failed, um, I'm signed up to join in civil disobedience uh, to stand in the way of the pipeline. And um, so I'm continuing this, you know, this work. Um, and but I feel like, it, in a way, that it begins with making sure your own house is clean. You know, a lot of times I friends of mine that are progressive um, are maybe out there marching about um, climate change. But when you ask them, you find out that they're, they're, they're using dirty energy in their house, you know? <laughs> so I think, you know, we have to start with our, with our own lives and then build out from there. Um, Judy, you and I spent time together at Standing Rock last fall. Thank you again for the invitation. Um, and we both witnessed a heavily militarized fossil fuel industry and the flagrant disregard for community there and human rights. What did you take away from the experience at Standing Rock? Well, wow. Um, well, first of all, I'm so glad you came on that, Rhonda, uh, and you're such a big help in helping to prepare meals and so on for so many people. So thank you for coming. Um, but um, I guess the thing that stands in my mind so vividly is that sharp contrast of opposing worldviews. You know, you see, you, you see the the military, they look like Darth Vader, you know, with, um, you know, riot gear, with these helmets um, and dressed all in black, you know, with uh, black uniforms, with bulletproof vests and these clubs and so on, you know, standing in a line with these t- with tanks. Um, 
And then opposed to this are Native American people, you know, on ponies or on foot, um, you know, dressed um, in regular clothes, you know, carrying signs about protecting the sacred um, and uh, sitting in prayer circles, you know. Um, and just the contrast uh, in, in, in worldviews was just so stark, you know, of, of uh, here's a, on one side uh, a worldview or symbols of a worldview that's based on domination and violence and, and it's fear-based, you know, versus um, a culture that's love-based and peaceful um, and based on, on uh, values of sharing and cooperation. And being there um, was really eye-opening and just to the extent that the Native people went to maintain their values in the face of, of this horrific uh, violence against them where they were beaten and maced and um, people lost eyes, and um, one, one young woman, she was an ally, uh, a white ally, uh, had most of her arm blown off by a grenade, um, and that happened right before we arrived. So um, even with all this violence towards them, they maintained uh, their love, and they explained to the, the police officers uh, that they were doing this work um, for the future of all children, including their children and the children of the pipe companies, the energy companies and so on. Um, so it was witnessing this um, love in action, I guess is what it was, you know. Um, and there, and really, I, I was so inspired by this. I, I, don't, I don't know whether I would be fighting the pipeline in Lancaster County right now uh, if it weren't for my experience in Standing Rock. Um, it, it, it empowered me, um, inspired me. Um, it made me realize uh, how important it is uh, to risk of, you know, putting our bodies on the line for, to protect Mother Earth, our, our common mother, um, the mother uh, for us all. Um, and the indigenous people really inspired that in me, um, to, that, that what they were asking for. After all that we've done to indigenous people with stealing their land, uh, the genocide and so on, all they are asking for of us is that we respect our mother and that we protect our children. Now, that is, you know, how can we not give them that? That they, they you know, I, I just, I was blown away, really, by Standing Rock and, and by the, the values that were represented there by the Indigenous people. You've done such a wonderful work there. I know that, you know, along with some of your friends, you've raised a tremendous amount of money and awareness um, about that situation. And I, I don't think that... Uh, the lessons of Standing Rock are over. I, I think that it will always be uh, in the history books sort of that, that marker, that place where people took a stand. But given the converging crises that we are facing, in environmental, um, economic, and political, and all you've learned, Judy, and this is a tough question, what's your prognosis? What changes do you see coming? Well, you know, um, I'm an eternal optimist, <laughs> so even though... I know that about you. Yeah, right, right, right. So, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening in the, in the world, including in our own, in, in our own White House and in Congress and so on, uh, that are very discouraging. But, but what I see, um, I do see uh, in, indigenous wisdom and energy rising, and I see feminine energy rising. Uh, I agree with you that uh, Standing Rock will live on forever, and it's um, it's it's symbolic, uh, you know, of not only of our um, uh, protecting what we we love and protecting the sacred, but also of 
building awareness about indigenous rights um, and how in, in indigenous people are the protectors of Mother Earth and should be honored and protected um, themselves for that. And all over the world, indigenous people are standing up. It's not just here uh, at Standing Rock, but on the Amazon and, and, uh, and, and all indigenous people there are um, using sticks and, you know, to uh, fight off the oil drillers. You know, it's, it's happening everywhere. Um, and I feel like it is affecting us and indigenous uh, people. I mean, they're not all the same, obviously when I, I'm speaking in generalities, but, um, tra traditional, uh, indigenous values, um, are, uh, I think a, 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 um, a balance of masculine and feminine energies that they, they have that this balance that, we all should be seeking. Um, and I think um, as part of indigenous energy rising, feminine energy is also rising. And I, I can see that, um, that um, I see speciesism, you know, our uh, humans' um, arrogance and uh, disrespect for other species uh, as being the root of other isms, you know, of racism, sexism, and so on. Uh, that is very fundamental of uh, how we as human beings, uh, treat other species. Um, and when we get away with brutalizing um, animals and treating them with such disrespect, we go on to do the same, you know, to, to human beings. And I see such, such movement now um, in um, animal rights movements um, that compassion for animals is, is becoming, uh, and I think we all have that in us, uh, our, uh, our ability to have compassion for animals. I think that's our natural state. But because of the horrific treatment of animals in the factory farms or in the testing labs, um, you know, and so on, uh, or, you know, how we, uh, you know, how the pharmaceutical companies will go into a jungle and just capture all these monkeys and, and, and ship them to the United States for these very cruel, uh, hor horrific tests. I mean, people, it's so horrible that people don't want to hear about it. You know what I mean? They, they just don't want to hear about it. So, but these animal rights groups uh, are, I, I so respect them and they're making headway. Um, and, you know, just in, for instance, like the circuses, um, the circuses, you know, when we were little, we, we thought the animals were having a great time in there. But um, now that we find out, uh, due to the undercover work of the animal rights organizations, that these animals are, are being tortured uh, and that it's uh, this really barbaric domination, you know, on, on display in, in the circuses. And now the circuses are are uh, getting rid of the animals, they're retiring the animals, you know, to sanctuaries and so on because of public demand, that the public now is having compassion and, and they're becoming knowledgeable of these things. So I see that as a sign of what's coming, uh, that when we change our relationship with animals, um, as we defeat the factory farm or farm system, um, as we put the circuses out of business, um, and the pharmaceutical companies are so... Uh, powerful, but I feel like that's there's inroads there. Um, that there's a movement, a strong movement now to do away with uh, experimenting on on uh, in particular dogs and monkeys. And of course, they've now retired um, the uh, chimpanzees from experimentation. The federal government has. So um, to me, that is that is a huge, huge vision of what's to come. Um, that if we can have um, a culture that respects um, and has compassion for animals that that's the ground floor of building a compassionate world um, so that we as human beings uh, can really find our place in the web of life um, in the family um, of, of life 
uh, not as torturers and exploiters and um, you know, but as, as, as lovers of, of life and of, of all species and of each other. And so that, that's my dream, that mankind will find our place in that way and the family of life. And, and, uh, and that's, that's the ultimate goal f- uh, for me. Uh, that's beautiful. And Judy, do you have any recommendations for practical ways that people, businesses, and communities can come together to address um, some of the injustices that we see today and to prepare for what's coming? Well, you know, uh, preparing for what's coming, uh, it, you know, uh, the first thing I think, of course, is, is climate change. Um, and so uh, in terms of practicality, uh, to me, the most important thing that people can do is to build local self-reliance in our basic needs, um, in particular food and energy. When we do that, first of all, we're, we're addressing the causes of climate change. If we, if we move to, to buy food that's uh, raised in our own region, and if we buy uh, renewable energy that's also produced in our own region by solar or wind, uh, biomass, whatever it be, may be, uh, that, that number one, we're reducing the carbons that are causing climate change, but number two, we're preparing our communities for what's coming, and we don't know exactly what is coming, but we do know that we will always need food and we will always need energy. Uh, and the more we can build up our, our, our local self-reliance and basic needs, uh, the safer we'll be in an unknown future. Because right now, so many of our communities depend on long-distance shipping routes to deliver us our basic needs. So I'd say the number one thing that people can do is to um, is to buy local um, food and and uh, locally produced renewable energy. And in doing this, in, in building local self-reliance, we get to know our community better. We get to know our farmers, our farmers markets. And I, I think there's a, a joy in this. When, when we go to the farmers market, there's a real um, happy spirit <laughs> when we go to farmers markets. You know, there's a joy in actually talking to the farmers, you know, that come in with their goods um, and knowing where our food comes from and knowing that the animals were well treated, that the soil was well treated because it's organic. And clothing as well. I mean, clothing, locally made clothing is on the rise and sustainably made uh, clothing that's using natural dyes and um, organic uh, materials and bamboo and hemp and so on. Um, so that's, the, I'd say, the most practical thing uh, we could do. But I, then I, I guess, you know, sort of philosophically or spiritually, whatever, that we need to shift our, our mindset from, uh, um, from me to we. Uh, that as a, Americans, we're kind of raised as independent individualists, you know, the independent cowboy or whatever. Um, and so we, we take great pride in, in being strong individualistic people uh, that can do it on our own and that we're only looking out for ourselves and our own family. And we have to change that mindset to, to a we, that we really look at our, our communities um, and that we make decisions for the good of the whole, just as I made the decision to share my supplier list with my competitors. You know, that was, uh, I was moving from me to we. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, I didn't make that decision because I knew in my head, uh, this is the right thing to do. You know, you learned in kindergarten to share, this is the right thing to do. I made that decision uh, totally from my heart uh, because I love the pigs. You know, so it was my, my love of the pigs and of nature and of small farmers that overcame my fear of not having, of losing profits and losing sales and not having enough for myself. Um, so 
I think that for all of us, uh, we need to make our decisions from a place of love, um, just as we've seen indigenous people do, and from that strong uh, feminine energy that's in all of us, uh, and to be willing to protect what we love, to stand up. And, you know, I think that the coming years are going to be, be bringing more and more opportunity and necessity for civil disobedience of, for people who have never been on a uh, march before, or maybe haven't been on a march since the Vietnam War, uh, to get out into the streets, uh, to make our voices heard, and to uh, get out into the rural areas and help to stop the pipelines, um, that we need to have all, all hands on deck, uh, because this is really a struggle for, for life on earth, uh, as, I, as I see it. I think it's clear, and the indigenous people know that, uh, that we all have to rise up as they are doing uh, to protect our common mother. Judy, for 30 years, I've witnessed the power of your personal effort to align your values with your actions, um, using the white dog as a political platform, divesting from big oil, forming fair trade alliances around the world. And I'm just so grateful for the work that you've done. I'm so grateful to call you a friend and so um, happy that you could spend this time with us on Cosmos Live. Oh, it's just great to be here, uh, Rhonda, and um, I'm so great, grateful that we're friends, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing you soon, and thank you. Thank you again. You're welcome.